Hello, and welcome to the Tech Disruptors podcast hosted by Bloomberg Intelligence. In this podcast series, we talk with C-level company executives and management teams about their views on disruption and how it's driving their decision-making and strategy. My name is Wu Jin Ho, analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, and with me is my special guest, former CEO, tech luminary, John Chambers. John, thank you for being on the show. Jin, it's going to be a pleasure. You, mean, you followed my companies, and we've talked off and on almost for a decade and a half. Yep. Now, John, I don't think you need much of an introduction, so I'm going to jump right into the conversation. It's been about seven years since you left uh, your CEO role at Cisco, and since then, you've taken on the venture capital and private equity world with JC2 Ventures. I know you're still very active in the Valley and, and the global technology community. I've listened to your podcast. Mm-hmm. I've seen your network on that podcast. Would you update the audience on how you concentrate your time and effort today? Well, we, Jen, yeah, and, uh, as you saw over the time period that we interfaced, Cisco was a tremendous, exciting time period, played a key role in leading with the internet, but we grew from yeah, 70 million in sales and 400 people to 48,000. And it's a different role when I left Cisco than obviously when I joined it. But what I found that I enjoyed most of all was I loved working with startups. We did 180 acquisitions, getting market transitions right. And so when I left Cisco and turned it over and it was up their leadership team to lead going forward, and it's a wonderful, wonderful company. And it's my family in many ways. I started focusing on startups and how could I coach them and teach them the lessons learned, et cetera, because I've seen almost every movie. I've made every mistake at least once. We've done some things really well, et cetera. And now I'm with JC2 and it's four of us involved in a venture capital firm that really is more of a mentor, a coach, not so much Mm -hmm. a financial investor, although obviously we invest. But if you'd ask my CEOs of the 20 companies, they'd probably say that I'm their key advisor, trusted, confidant. I've already talked to two CEOs this morning alone about areas that they were focused on. And then I focus on getting to grow and scale, but also handle the disruptions, which every startup goes through. As I said earlier, messed up at least once, but it's fun. We've got 10 unicorns out of 20 that I'm heavily involved in India, the U.S.-India Strategic Partnership Forum. I think most strategic relationship between any two countries. I'm chairman of that. Uh, Heavily involved in France, where I'm the French digital high tech ambassador for President Macron. And then I'm a home state of West Virginia, about a startup state. So spending my time uh, doing things that I really love doing. Well, that's great. And uh, you said you have 10 unicorns. I want to talk a little bit about the tech disruptions that you're keen on. So let's, why don't we just dig right in and talk about your portfolio? And, and I want to start with security, right? It seems you're really high in security. Like you have Rubrik, Spark Ignition, Pindrop. There's some of these security names in your portfolio. What are the security problems that these companies try to tackle and, and what makes them so unique? I believe that if you were having one of your own families go into school and say, specialize in two areas that relates to technology, mm-hmm. I would say to my kids or grandkids, focus on cybersecurity and artificial intelligence. What is focused on security is it's something that I think will become more complex and more challenging. So pardon the pun, it truly is a secure place to be focused on. As a CEO, and as I talk to other CEOs, the first thing you want to know is where are you versus your peers? What are you doing right? What can you learn from others? And if you invest in given areas, how good do you do in closing down those loopholes or challenges? And how would that improve your overall approach? I have two companies in that area in terms of being how prepared you are. One is safe security. The other is Bobix. They focus on cyber risk quantification. 
and give you a simple to understand way of where are you in the market, how that might tie to cyber insurance, and give you an idea if you invest in certain areas, what would be the outcome. Then the second thing after you learn how prepared you are is how do you prevent attacks? And I have two companies in that area, a company called Provoro, which is the only secure phone in the world that with any luck, our government in the U.S. will be moving towards using this in the most secure places where you take an app or a Samsung phone, do a hardware platform, bring it together, and it makes it completely secure so you could take it in the most top secret areas. They're off to a great start overall. Then Spark Cognition is in the area of industrial security and AI capability, just a really great company. Then if you get attacked, so the first one is uh, how prepared are you? Secondly is how do you prevent? Inevitably, attacks will occur. Uh, how do you deal with them? A company called D-Drone literally is a technology that allows you to see drones in the area and how do you deal with them? Who are they, et cetera? And if need be, you can bring them down through electronic pulse and force them to land overall. Uh, very active in today's defense systems, but also in corporate security, et cetera. Then a company called FirstSec that watches for the patterns in your software and server workloads. And when they see a pattern that's not right, they can shut it down in milliseconds. It's an earlier startup company, early stage in terms of direction. And then the last one is how do you recover? Rubric. And if you watch what they do and they've done so well on it, they have the capability, not as, as a backup in a company, a storage company. It really is about when the attacks occur, ransom attacks, how do you very quickly recover? How do you protect it and bring it back up? Uh, it's off to a tremendous start. And it might be my first Decacorn in terms of the startup. So out prepared, how do you prevent the attacks? How do you shut them down when they occur? And then how do you recover? And why don't, why don't we move to machine learning and AI? And, and something that's very topical right now is... Is deep fakes. And I believe some there's a company called Pindrop within your portfolio that identifies deep fake voice. And, and that's been on the news quite a bit. And I'm just curious how we should start thinking about Pindrop as it relates to what's going on in social media and then also regular news. Great question. Let me start with the AI piece first. Artificial intelligence, in my opinion, will be the third major technology area, much like the internet was for several decades, then the cloud for several decades. Now I think it will be AI. I think it will be that big. And while people have been talking about it largely in the next four or five months with chat, GPT, et cetera, uh, I started betting on AI literally five years ago with a number of the startups. Now to the tying right. security to AI, pin drop, what they do amazingly well is that while I was honored to call out that voice would be free in the service provider environment and get the market transition right there, even though my service provider friends weren't very happy, you've got to see where the market's going. It waits for no one and they have to get ahead in terms of the services they provide to their customers. Voice will be the primary interface for the internet of things, whether it's driving your car, whether it's interfacing to security, whether it's interfacing to any type of technology in the future, in my opinion. I know it's a little bit controversial. And as that occurs, deep fakes is a very important issue because when you listen to the voice, uh, you as a human, it sounds like, well, Jen, I'm sure that's you talking. But what people don't know oh, yeah. does very well. They came out of security in the call centers through the, the hackers coming in and trying to disrupt. They have over 5 billion voice calls that they've worked with. They understand how the human voice works. And while you don't hear it as a human, in a average second, your voice has 8,000 samples in it. Our voice does. 
So you can interpret very quickly when a person is actually the person talking or when it's somebody else. Anthony Bourdain in the one area that he had 45 minutes of voice, Pendrock could pick out exactly what were the small areas that were not his own voice that somebody else had dubbed in. So I think they're going to be a very serious player here, but I think it's going to be even bigger beyond just the issues of voice security in terms of interface to the Internet of Things. We'll see if that develops well, but I'm extremely, extremely happy with how they're developing. Well, we we know that uh, you may not have made the moniker Internet of Things or Internet of Everything. You popularized it. So I'm excited to see what's going to happen with Pindrop. Want to shift gears to your roots in networking. One of the companies also within your portfolio is Nile. Uh, yes. That came out of self mode, I believe, last year. And it seems to be a campus switching solution offered as a solution, uh, as a service. And I'm, I'm, I may be oversimplifying this, but what's the dis- disruption that Nile is offering to customers that a normal campus switching solution does not? Well, in simplistic terms, think about it. We're on a Zoom session today, and my prior company, mm-hmm. Cisco, had the best video. Interestingly enough, out of the bird flu epidemic in Mexico in 2006, we invented telepresence. And what Zoom did very well, and I like Eric there, and he, I did a podcast with him, their CEO. He said, John, you taught me at Cisco, you know, how do you do architectures and platforms? And he said, I just made it simple. And if you watch what now has done very well is they made networking simple, the ability to focus on the network and deliver it as a service. Now, simplicity sounds easy, but if you take a IBM mainframe in the old days and made it simple and try to make it like a mini computer, it never worked. It was just too complex. You have to start with a clean sheet of paper. And that's what Pankaj Patel, the CEO, did there. Pankaj and I have invested in eight companies together. He was my head of engineering at, at Cisco and a wonderful, brilliant engineer. But what they did is they designed it from scratch because you can't make it look like the old system and just do incremental improvement or wrap it differently with a financial wrapper to make it as a service. You have to design it and take the costs out. 75% of the costs of putting in networks and maintaining them is people. And as I would travel around at Cisco and following Cisco, the areas that I got the feedback on were two that I constantly got pushed on and didn't have as good answers as I needed. First, the customer said, John, we spend 75% or so of our expenses on getting the networks running, et cetera. And while that complexity is nice, it really can't be the future. Make it simple for me to use and make it very easy to, and we'll split the savings that we get off of that. Second thing that they really uh, talked about is having to do big upgrades every three years or five years doesn't make sense. Keep us upgraded automatically. Let you own the technology and just say, here's it, it what it costs per seat a user. So a combination really, uh, a lot of the software combinations you see today. So while that sounds simple, it is about taking complex things, making it simple, and getting the next generation. We'll see if now is as successful as we hope to be, but it raised over, I don't know if Pankaj had said it, $400 million the first time we raised money before any product had shipped, and we're in the process of doing another fundraise. I think you'll see it be a very, very good up round again. And John, just one thing. I mean, the one thing is buying patterns. that uh, You've been through this before. Are customers ready to purchase a hardware and a software bundled as a service? I think they're more than ready. The issue that I used the example of was something that I'd been criticized on for not doing quicker, you know, for 20 years. 
And if you watch the successful companies, and I think the large incumbents would do well, and there'll be some you know, startups that really kind of challenge them who will also do very well, but it's selling outcomes, not technology. And what customers mm-hmm. want is I want it to be simple. I want it to be easy to install. I want to spend about very valuable and expensive resources on outcomes in the company as opposed to being a network player within the group. Well, now, anytime you have a new service, as you knew, Wujin, it takes a while for it to do Jeffrey Moore's crossing the chasm, to move from the innovators to the early adopters across the chasm to on Main Street. So I would say we're in the early adopter stage. It takes a while because it's a different way of thinking. People are mm-hmm. very comfortable with their current status quo. But when you look at the cost efficiencies, you look at the flexibility, I think it will be the trend of the future. Right. Let's talk about one of your uh, unicorn graduates, Pensando. I know it's no longer under your umbrella right now. Would you share with the audience what Pensando does and what made it so attractive for, for AMD to have it within their own portfolio? If you watch what Pensando did, and this is an engineering team that I'd worked with since 1993 when I bought Crescendo, Mario, mm-hmm. Luca and Sony and Randy Pond. And it was an amazing team that did $8 billion products for me while I was at Cisco. I left and later they left and they said, John, we'd like to do a startup in the next area, taking cloud to the edge. And they said, we'd like to do it by being driven with bringing together networking and server technology together and storage technology together and make it very easy to use at the edge with a lot of software and very custom ASICs. And so the concept was simple. They did, which in which I always believe I'm enterprise driven, customer driven. Before I, I invest in a company, I go out and say to my enterprise customers that might be their customers or could be, what do you think? And in this case, almost all the funding came out of enterprise companies. So companies like Oracle, uh, Network Appliance, Ericsson, HPE, very much were uh, investors in this. And it ended up being a very, not just a very good investment for them, but using the technology very, very effectively. And so they caught the transition. So when I invest, I look at a business model change enabled by new technology. Then I look at the leadership team. Then I go to the customers and say, is this really important to you? And then I basically look, can it be the one or two player within the group? Pensando clearly fit in that category. You know, and it, it was interesting because we had a decision, do we stay independent or do we become part of a larger company? Uh, there were a lot of advantages of becoming part of AMD. Lisa Sue's team is amazing, Forrest, et cetera, on it. But you need economies of scale with supply chain issues, with the ability to integrate into total bigger architecture. And our customers were again saying, well, they love the engineering talent and the business talent of the Pensando team. They said, we'd rather see you part of a larger company. So I think it's an example that's going to be a home run for uh, uh, AMD and Lisa Sue and her team. She is an amazing CEO, but it will also be a home run for the employees of Pensando in terms of being able to scale up and, and grow, much like the original Crescendo acquisition did in 1993. Now, now it's, it's interesting that you said that there was a lot of interest by your enterprise customer peers and your, and your enterprise peers in general. And it seems as if data center architectures are starting to evolve very, very quickly. We were starting to see the disaggregation of hardware and software. And I thought that SDN, software-defined networking, unlocked a lot of potential disruptions in the network. Now, from your vantage point, are there still bottlenecks that need to be fixed in the in the network? And I think you touched on it. Like It seems as if Passando fit into these changes into the past. But what are the bottlenecks do you think Passando and some of your other companies fix? 
In terms of the series of questions you ask, basically, when you look at performance in the network, the majority of the technology will be software, in my opinion. However, mm-hmm. there's got to be ASICs and customer ASICs in there in a big way, which is where these semiconductor companies clearly get it and bring advantages. If you have really good custom ASICs teams, and Passando clearly did, and AMD clearly does as well. And then you have really good software teams, which the majority of the employees in Pasamo were software, over 200 of them were software, if I remember right, uh, engineers on it. You can get these technologies to work together at a speed and architecture that others cannot match. In simple outcome-based terms, which is what I always like to talk about, what does it mean to the customer? It meant five to 13 times the throughput, performance, latency advantages, et cetera, of AWS who is clearly the biggest cloud model in the market. So that's the technology that AMD owns. And I think you'll see them use the technology very well, both for where the company was going to go, but how they look at it at a bigger scale. Got it. Let's shift gears. Let's talk about AI, ChatGPT, which is on the the mainstream news right now. And you touched upon it earlier. What are some of the big picture technology impacts from um, AI, VR, large language learning? How do you think about it over the next couple of years? Well, going back to part of our earlier discussion, I think there's going to be three major trends in the industry from starting in the late 1980s to the next decade. The first was the internet, and I was fortunate enough to be there with a great team and great people. The second is cloud, which we participated in, and many of my companies are in that area. And software as a service within the cloud is one of the hottest areas for startups, as you know very, very well on it. And then there's going to be AI. So I think AI will be bigger than either one of the prior generations. Like many, it's become exciting in the last six months, but you had to begin to bet on AI literally five, six, seven years ago. And that's when I began to make my investments into major AI companies, companies like Unifor in the customer experience area or ASAP in the customer experience area as well. Great unicorns already in in both of them in terms of the direction. I said that in uh, 2022, at the beginning of 22, I made a number of predictions each year over the last three years that we go through if you would like, but they've been lucky and they've been pretty accurate. But I said that AI would move to Main Street in 2022. It It moved a little bit later. It really was end of year. And by first quarter this year, when you sell Microsoft or Lisa Sue at one of the major, I think, consumer electronics shows where she said AI is the next big thing to happen, et cetera, with Google and others moving. So I think it is in the process of rapidly moving across the chasm. I think expectations will get ahead of its ability to, to really deliver on certain categories. But I think it is the most exciting thing going on for the next one and probably two decades. The, the other thing, one of my big takeaways uh, when I was following you at Cisco, you were a really, really big proponent of smart city, IoT, IOE, right? Does does AI, VR come into play in that landscape? Because I've, I've got to believe you're still big in smart cities. Very much. And what you're really describing, and remember, Eugene, when we talked about smart cities, we were talking about them 20 years ago. We were talking about digital countries, yes. talking about smart cities. Internet of Everything. And Prime Minister Modi in India got that. And he did a digital India, smart cities, internet company, et cetera, country. And it's the fastest growing startups in terms of number of unicorns in the world in India. Who would have thought that in five years ago? And it also is going to dramatically increase the per capita income of all the citizens within the country. And so the smart cities, the digital 
countries, the digital states are absolutely going to happen. And much like any big concepts, it takes a while to go through and you've got to get your early innovators and then early adopters and then on to early majority on it. But it's going to be bigger, I think, on impact. Everything will be connected, 500 billion devices. But it's how do you connect that in a virtual reality and in a practice way to really make self-driving cars really practical, to bring this functionality to the average citizen in a way that changes their lives in a very positive way or to the companies. So the digital world that's coming at us, that's probably the biggest transition that you'll see over the next couple of decades. So I want to shift gears here. You know, you, you talked about your mentorship Right now, you've experienced through a couple of down cycles, right? The tech bubble, the 2008, 2009 financial crisis, and those weren't really easy. And now we're facing a new banking crisis amid a recessionary overhang. Now, given the current down cycle, how do you evaluate new companies that approach you for mentorship or funding? So break it into the three three categories you just did. I've I've seen the slowdowns from the Asian financial crisis, 1997, true, uh, to 2001 dot com bust, and that was by far and away the biggest challenge to startups and to the IT industry. And you know, my business went from 70 percent growth the first week in December to minus 45 percent growth by the third week in January. And I'd never been not only never been negative, I'd never been below 50% growth to the best of my knowledge on it. Right. So tremendous downturns. We did a lot better in 2007. We saw that one coming. We learned from our mistakes in 2001, which were my fault that I missed it. And so we saw the trends develop and we said there's an economic downturn potentially coming and we set our company up to do that. It did come in 2008, 2009. We navigated through it well. The current one is too early to say on. If you watch the recessions just been just six months away for what, a year, year and a half on it, the central banks have done a lot of things well and probably overstimulated the economy. Now they're tightening back up, tightening back up. And we made predictions uh, in 2022 we said we didn't think COVID would be the primary business challenge, which many people thought it was back in December and January of the end of the year. And it turned out to be, uh, unfortunately, very accurate. And right. we have to, for those people that haven't seen inflation, you have to get inflation tamed because when you have interest rates, which I saw early in my career with you know, mortgages in the high teens, it's impossible to maintain the economy at the, the rent rates that you need. Nobody knows for sure in this one, and it's why I believe it's about agility this year. I'd have a plan A, B, and C on where to go. The most likely is we'll navigate through it with maybe a slight economic downturn or upturn. There's so many variables now in play, including the most recent issue with the uh, potential crisis in the banking area. All those central banks actually have, in my opinion, responded very well. And other big corporate banks have also done a very good job on it. So uh, I think agility is the key issue here. Too early to say, but I'll, I'll just remind your listeners Everybody's been saying this recession was just around the corner for almost a year and a half now. And that we made it this year in the same scenario. So I think agility, which I do not like the word of originally, I thought it was a marketing term, is the key word for 2023. You've got to be agile. You've got to be able to adjust quickly. And nobody knows for sure. And so, so under that context, how do you help your portfolio company founders manage through this uncertain environment? Right. I'm not going to say downturn yet, but uncertainty and uncertain environment. So it's fairly basic. And let's assume that the economy is slowing, which it clearly is. And let's assume that the mm -hmm. startups are facing pressure, which all of them clearly are. I believe in playbooks, Jen, as you probably know, playbook for how you do 180 acquisitions, a playbook for how you evaluate mm -hmm. companies, a playbook for how you deal with turnover, a playbook for how do you deal with crisis management, et cetera. And the playbook for an economic slowdown is fairly simple. The leader, she or he cannot hide. You've got to be visible. 
and you got to lead from the front. The second is be realistic. When you have gone 12 years like we currently have, there are inefficiencies built into your company and there are areas that you either funded too long or areas that aren't going to work out or mistakes made. And by the way, if you don't make mistakes, you're not taking enough risk and you're moving fast. And no matter how good people are or honest they are, they do make mistakes and myself very much included. And so it's, it's the mistakes that you made. You want to say, here are the things we have to correct. And then you want to see how much is done by the economic slowdown, the market, et cetera. Then you develop a five to seven phase approach to how you deal with the areas you must do better. And that can relate to how you do cash preservation, how do you interface different to your customers? How do you determine which areas you're going to rebet on and prioritize much tighter? And maybe even take one that you're still going to bet on that's a little bit of a dream, but you fold into it. Here's what the company looks like when it comes out. Then you interface to your employees, to your customers, to your shareholders, to your partners. How are you going to navigate through that? And you give regular updates. Originally, when you start to go into it every couple of weeks over time, depending on how long this stays, perhaps a little bit further apart, and you keep them focused on the North Star and what is possible. I think this is when you break away. I think even though we all hate the pain associated with it, the, when there's free money, too many startups get started, too many people spent a lot of money without a clear path to profitability and free cash flow. The good news is almost all my companies were focused on profitability and free cash flow and the merry-go-round at some point in time stopping because I'd seen that movie before as well. And most of them have navigated through it pretty well. A couple have come back and said, John, you were right. If you make changes, make them once and do it aggressive. I think a couple of them have revisited that and said, I wish we'd been a little bit more aggressive making changes just once. But most of them are in very good shape coming through it here and we'll see what the future brings. I'll tell you that some of these uh, mega cap com- tech companies are taking a page out of your page book right now, playbook right now, and it seems and just try not to make the same mistakes uh, as some of the other smaller tech tech companies in the past. So uh, just stay on this theme about the private companies. I mean, has the skill set and the criteria of today's private company founders changed at all since the time you started as CEO at Cisco? I mean, what, what are some of the qualities that you're looking for for, for a tech leader today? It's a great question, and I'm clearly buying time so I can think about the answer is, is I distract yep. your audience on it, giving away one of my secrets. I think the major thing that has changed is the speed of change. When I talked before, and I talked about speed of change in internet terms, I said it was three to one years internet terms in the 90s that occurred in technology up to that time point. I would say it's at least five to one speed of change today. And you saw that with the banking crisis to where a bank could be in good shape on a Tuesday and by Wednesday afternoon or Thursday afternoon, a real challenge. And that speed of change is what each of the leaders has to adjust to and be realistic on. In terms of making the changes, once you realize the speed will be much more, you have to play the game out a little bit better. I used to consider that bureaucracy or, or process a bad word. You've got to outline where you're going and you've got to be able to adjust very quickly as you go through it. I still measure the leaders very simply on what's their track record. I don't get hard work, confusing results. How great a team do they build? Do they really understand their industry and do they have differentiation in it? And are they writing new technology to get ahead? What do the customers say about them? And how is their culture? Did they really walk the talk and the culture, which often helps you navigate through the downturns as well. So those five characteristics, Wujin, are the same. The different one is speed and how technology itself is playing a role in dramatically increasing that speed of change. I would add, this is the most complex environment I've seen. So not only is speed of change more, but the geopolitical issues, the inflationary issues, the financial uh, crisis issues, the COVID issues, supply chain issues. These are complexities that are all in and of themselves serious challenges. And you have six or seven of them working together, which makes it even more important to be agile. 
And I, and I think this is a good segue because I actually wanted to think bigger picture now. And yeah. I want to talk about geopolitics. Let's start with China. I want to talk about China in a couple of aspects. I want to talk about it first from a global supply chain, right? I know that Cisco back in the day, or still does, have a very complex global supply chain. But what are your thoughts on, on the growing push to disaggregate the manufacturing supply chain away from China? I think there are a lot of advantages, but I also think there are a lot of disadvantages too. And I'm just curious on what you're thinking. If I can take the step back and paint the big picture first and answer your question very specifically. Sure. One of the very first bets I made as CEO of Cisco, and it was very controversial at the time, was to invest big in China in 1995 and to literally outsource manufacturing and bring that concept of high-tech, high-end technology build into China. And candidly, it was a real win for, for my company, but it was also a real win for the Chinese. And to be very open, every commitment made to me by government leaders or business leaders was delivered upon. Tough negotiators, but it was that... A give and take it was a win for uh, multiple decades. Today's world is a little bit more of a win-lose type mentality on it. I think the the key move toward deglobalization, unfortunately, is going to occur because on supply chain, you've got to be pretty sure about you being able to maintain your supply chain, but you've got to be pretty sure that it is safe from a security perspective. So I think you will see deglobalization occur. I don't think that's necessarily good for the world because globalization allows you to get components at lower price efficiencies and allowed much more countries to participate. I do think you're going to see supply chain issues, especially on strategic infrastructure type of technologies, et cetera, even down to the semiconductor level, obviously, occur along companies that there is trust and confidence in. A company's currency or leader's currency is very simple, their track record, the relationships and the trust that they have. So I think that deglobalization is going to occur. I think it it plays toward bringing more technology back to the U.S. and, and U.S. allies, but also to India's benefit. I, Prime Minister Modi, who's one of the top three mm-hmm. government leaders I've ever met in my life's vision of a digital India is not only right, but he sees that as a manufacturing India where they have a population, the average age is 26 years old. They will be the fastest growing economy year over year growth, in my opinion, and the fastest growing standard of living in the world. And they've done a, a very good job with the vision of where the country needs to go using everything we talked about today. And I right. think they one of the beneficiaries of, of a different supply chain structure. Over time, I hope we get back to being able to share stuff in a more open fashion. I think that is usually what occurs. That's in the U.S. best interest, China's best interest, the world's best interest. But for now, I think things will be more deglobalization than we than we might have seen or thought just five years ago. Now, do you think we can lower the temperature at all between U.S. and China relations? Because I do think that we need a healthy relation to really get technology going to where the world wants it to go. Well, you know, I'm not as tightly tied to China as I was earlier in my career. So just talking more in general terms, I love the Chinese people and I very much enjoy my time there. I learned from Dr. Ann Wang, who was a Chinese-American company, was at Wang Laboratories many years ago. So I think it's in both countries' best interest to work through this. I think it's in the world's best interest to do it. Uh, Things might get a little bit more tough before they get better, but I've always found that as long as people are logical and they try to always understand the other person's view and what they're trying to do and receptive to a healthy give and take, then the right outcome occurs. The right outcome clearly is over time for the countries to work together. We'll see if that help happens or not. So, so you talked a lot about India, right? Yes, um, I love it. It India. almost seems as, 
it almost seems as if India can benefit or gain from some of the, I, I guess, the tensions between U.S. and China with shifting the supply chains. It took China quite a number of years to get their manufacturing capability and supply chain to get to where it is today. I mean, how, how do you envision the roadmap for, for uh, India's economic progress and what needs to get done to get to where they want to be? So in the sequence you ask it, I do think the deglobalization is an opportunity for India. I think there's a good chance they will very much capitalize on it. But the big trend in India would have occurred regardless of deglobalization or geopolitics involved. It's that you have a country that is better and better educated, tremendous Stanford, MIT type of schools mm -hmm. with the IITs, over a dozen of them there in yep. India, producing 600,000 students a year, 22% of their students, female engineers, which I love. And and gender equality, and I'm a huge believer that inclusion is very key to economic growth and can be just very good for business as well as the right thing to do for society. So I think India is positioned to grow regardless of the geopolitical uh, type of approaches. And I think they've positioned themselves remarkably well versus other countries. Now, going back to the point that you made earlier, when you first outline a vision of the future that people don't see, there are a lot of people that don't think it will happen. And can lead fair critics who say, well, this is a dream too far and not possible, et cetera. I think India's dream in terms of playing on a world stage, and I, I think most people would say I was one of the first really big bulls on India again and again. Moved my second world headquarters to India almost 17 years ago uh, at Cisco. I bet on Digital India in terms of the strategy, chairman of the U.S.-India Strategic Partnership Forum, and you could just see the trends, and that was dots fairly easy to connect with a great leader and Prime Minister Modi. Great. I got to say, not only with your support, number one, but also you have a lot of support from, you know, U.S. corporate leaders, whether it's uh, Sasha Nadella, Jay Shri from, from Arista. There is people to look up to or also add support. And to add, they have the engineering background in, in terms of the education system in India. Are there still obstacles that India needs to break down to really get the India digital innovation really rolling? Well, the obstacles exist for within any country in the world, including the U.S. Mm -hmm. You need right. a digital plan. And I would argue that India is the furthest in the world on their digitization plan and understanding how you mm -hmm. break it into components, the pieces you have to do, how they come together from an architecture. And that is Prime Minister Modi's vision. That is his own vision. He didn't have a team do it for him. He put it together and they got a team to really implement on it. They have the classic approach. As you grow like any startup, and this is a startup, country in many ways in terms of moving from a developing to a developed country over the next two decades. I think it will be the fastest growing. There's lots of challenges to go with that. Breaking down the barriers toward a digital India and the movement across the states and making it easy to do business with at lower cost. Ease of doing business, tremendous improvement over the last five years, tremendous, but still have to go further. And the willingness to partner and strategically drive with startups being your economic engine, probably in the future, large companies that we've seen in the recent reports have not added much headcount uh, over the last couple of years in Canley, will not add much over the next decade. Most of the growth will come from startups, small companies getting bigger. So you've got to have a smart startup country in terms of the positioning across all the uh, 28 states and eight territories there. The U.S. needs to do the exact same thing. And we're, while we're further along, we aren't moving fast enough. But the key takeaway for your audience is the number one country in the world in year-over-year -year growth in unicorns, granted off a smaller base, is India. And you're talking yes. in the mid-80s. 
but they grew over 2%, if I remember right, last year on the unicorns and year to date. The U.S. had a very good year, grew at 12%, the largest base. Last time I looked at the data, about 1,441 uh, unicorns. Interestingly enough, France grew out of the fastest out of Europe, a growth rate of about, I think, 18 or 19%, maybe 20, but it had the smaller base. Now you begin to uh, see it as the startup nation. So it really speaks to what this is all about with innovation and your viewers on your podcast. It's about the ability to dream, be able to use technology to change the world, mainly for the better, and to deal with the opportunities and challenges society faces. And John, the one thing I think that India is starting to do right now and, and, and start to recognize that truly goes back to your lineage, they actually need a really good and strong communications network to connect everything together. And we're starting to see the investments in 5G really starting to wrap up and their optical networks ramp up. And what you've learned or what we've learned from you was that once that network comes, is down in the network, it actually opens up a lot new opportunities that we didn't think about five, when the first idea was, was blueprinted. So I'm assuming that's where India is right now, where, where the, the networks are starting to come down and then planting the seeds for digital innovations in the future. Well, just going back decades and decades ago, when the U.S. built out its internet, inter, uh, interstate system, the highway system really brought economic prosperity that was not possible yep. to all of the states. The same thing is true with the internet. My dad and mom taught me that education was the equalizer in life. I added to that the internet is the equalizer in life. And uh, you combine the two, education and the ability to work from anywhere, then all of a sudden you can change populations regardless of where they're located in ways that could never have occurred before. What India has done a very good job of is created the opportunity for the most complex and biggest networks in the world. And with what Reliance did with Geo, et cetera, with Cisco as their partner, was to build out uh, a network that was capable of not just data voice, but also video and literally got the trends right. And when you begin to see that by them and their peers within the industry, you have an infrastructure that suddenly people can build on. If you didn't have that infrastructure in place, Wijin, to where you're leading me, India, would that would be the biggest hurdle to get over and take the most time to get over. Now, that doesn't mean right. it's anywhere too perfect. It's not. They have to continue to improve just like any, any government does. They have to have the courage to disrupt and the courage to change and not rest on the laurels. But again, if I were betting on, on one country in Asia, I would bet on India. If I were betting on two countries in Asia, I'd bet on India twice. I want to put on your crystal ball, right? You mentioned that you were investing in AI five years prior before it really started to go mainstream or close to crossing the chasm. What's the disruptive technology that the audience should be familiar with that's not really broadly known today and then will cross the chasm five years from now? Well, I think the ones that are going to cross the chasm five years from now are already on people's radar. The artificial intelligence, the cybersecurity, the other technologies that are there. The biggest play is a digital world, which I think people are just getting their minds around and how that changes the life of every individual, every company, every country in the world on it. Quantum computing has a chance to be a huge jump, but that that in terms of volumes and scale is, is quite a ways mm -hmm. out. I do think it has tremendous potential. That's very expensive to get into, so it's out of my my pay grade in terms of participating on it. But I think it is how technology and how every person in the world becomes a technology company, a technology individual, a digital company, a digital individual that really gets me excited about the future, even though I'm sure there are going to be bumps along the way. Yep. 
So we covered a lot of topics here today, John. So we covered technology, your companies, your politics, India, company membership, uh, mentorship. As we wrap up, what is the one lesson you want to leave with the audience that we should walk away with from this podcast? There's so many messages and so many lessons learned and mistakes made. But if I were to share with one that I think is most important is as we move into this digital world, I think it's important to continue to dream really big. Shimon Perez, who had a tremendous relationship and friendship with, he wrote, there's no room in the world for small dreams. You've got to dream big and have the courage to do it. I worry that we're not dreaming as big as countries, as states, as individuals, for our kids, et cetera. And while I'm not talking about dreaming in an unrealistic way, you've got to have the courage to disrupt yourself and disrupt your segment of your industry or your groups that you're with in order to achieve things that really have tremendous value to society. So I'd say I'm more the optimist. I think we got to dream a little bit bigger. I think the enabling technology on a digital world is there to make that happen. And I challenge all of us, myself included, to continue to disrupt. Well, John, thank you for your thoughts. I think this is a good place to wrap up, disrupt, and be optimistic. John, thanks for being on this podcast. Eugene, a pleasure as always, my friend. And thanks, uh, everyone, for joining me on today's episode. Uh, You can find all of our episodes on Spotify or iTunes. Plus, we have a great lineup of guests in the coming weeks. So click subscribe to keep up to date with Tech Disruptors and get alerts when new episodes as they come out. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye.